Welcome to Doctors of the Church. In this fascinating series, Father Charles Connor examines the lives and writings of all 33 Doctors of the Church, including St. Thomas Aquinas, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, and Catherine of Siena. Now, here's Father Connor. Hello and welcome once again to our series on the Doctors of the Church. Not very long ago, Pope Pius IX was declared blessed. He was a pope who had a 32-year reign, one of the longest reigns in papal history. And in the course of those 32 years, Pope Pius IX, who reigned in the 19th century, of course, had to confront many, many obstacles and many threats to the church's life. He also had moments of great triumph as pope. For example, it was during his pontificate that the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary was proclaimed. Our belief that Our Lady was preserved free from the stain of original sin from the first moment of her conception. Pius IX was also the Pope who presided over the First Council of the Vatican and solemnly proclaimed the doctrine of papal infallibility. That doctrine which tells us that when the Holy Father speaks ex cathedra from his chair, on matters of faith and morals, he is possessed by the Holy Spirit with the gift of infallible truth. But Pope Pius IX had many, many difficulties and problems. For example, he was also the Pope who had to write and compile what has come down to us in history as the syllabus of errors. It was a listing of many of the modern errors that one found in the modern world of the 19th century, which the Holy Father said very explicitly Catholics could not accept. He was also the Pope who had to confront many political movements that were hostile to the church. You had liberal Catholicism, which was theologically hostile in many ways. You had political movements like Josephinism, Gallicanism, Fabronianism. All of these political movements had the goal of trying to put the Catholic Church in a subordinate position. So believe me, in the course of 32 years of his pontificate, Pope Pius IX had many, many difficulties and problems to confront. And that is probably why, during that long pontificate, Pope Pius IX proclaimed three additional doctors of the Church to try once again to bolster the faith of Catholics, to try once again to make Catholics look at saintly people from earlier generations, see how they lived their lives, see what they did for the faith, and not simply be impressed by what they did for the faith, but be strengthened in their own faith by looking back at the lives of those who were such defenders of faith and such heroes in the faith that they could indeed be proclaimed doctors of the church. Well, the first doctor of the church that was proclaimed by His Holiness Pope Pius IX came in 1851 in the person of St. Hilary of Poitiers. Hilary was a man who was very far removed from the 19th century. He was born in the early 4th century in Gaul of a noble family. Hilary converted from paganism, and as was quite the acceptable custom, as we've seen with a number of these men, Hilary was baptized at quite a late age. He, of course, studied for the priesthood and was ordained, and found himself named Bishop of Poitiers in France in the year 350 A.D. Almost immediately, he became involved in the Arian heresy, and in fighting that heresy which had overtaken so much of Europe. 
At one particular church senate that was presided over by Arian bishops, Hillary was actually castigated for his sound orthodoxy. And at a later time, later in the very same year, he was actually for a time exiled by the emperor. And do you know the reason why Hillary was exiled? Because he refused to condemn Athanasius. Athanasius was one of the only orthodox defenders of the faith. Hillary refused to condemn him, and Hillary was exiled. But, thanks be to God, Hillary was not exiled for a terribly long period of time. He came back, and when he came back, he fought the Arian heresy with greater force than ever, and he was extremely persuasive. Hillary was able to get many bishops and many priests back to his way of thinking, back on his side, if you will. He was able to to uh, convince bishops and bishops' councils and even local church synods of the errors of this priest Arius, this man who would deny the divinity of Christ. So Hillary was to have a rather successful time of it, if you will, at least in certain areas of the world, in refuting this Arian heresy. And it was that kind of orthodoxy, that firmness in orthodoxy, that was going to categorize the remainder of his life and his service to the church. Besides defending the faith, Hillary was also, of course, a great theologian. He's often been called the theologian of the Trinity because he meditated on, he wrote upon, he studied the great mystery of the Blessed Trinity through the greater part of his life. And perhaps his most famous work was his treatise on the Trinity, at the beginning of that wonderful work, he first of all opens his book by, by describing his own conversion from paganism, his inner journey, his quest for God. It was a philosophical quest, but Hillary says it was also very much a religious quest. His answers came to him from Scripture and particularly from the Gospel of John. And as soon as his answers came to him, it, it was almost as if by instinct he began to defend the Orthodox faith. I had long been baptized, he writes, and had been exercising the functions of a bishop for some time, but had never heard mention of the creed of Nicaea, except when I went into exile. Isn't it an interesting statement? Well, this man, Hillary, has been known to history as the Athanasius of the West. And the comparison is probably very, very justified because of the orthodoxy of his doctrine and the, the very strong orthodoxy of his theological work. It's interesting to see how this magnificent treatise on the Trinity, which St. Hilary wrote, has been described by historians and theologians who have looked at it. One commentator described the treatise on the Trinity in this way. It's, it seems as if the author has fused two works into one. A first study of the faith, and then a systematic refutation of the theses of Arius, along with the arguments and biblical texts that he uses. By virtue of its exhaustive character and its dimensions, his treatise on the Trinity represents a new development in Latin literature, which was to have considerable influence on the Arian debate and on later centuries. So he made magnificent theological contributions. Hillary was also a historian of some note. He wrote a book called The Historical Fragments, which told us a great deal about an early church council, the Council of Remini, that was held in 359 A.D. We also see the pastor and the spiritual writer in Hillary coming out in other works that he did. 
He wrote a famous book called The Treatise on the Mysteries, which seemed to have been composed for priests or for catechists. And the Treatise on the Mysteries was a, a Christian rereading of the Old Testament, in which the biblical figures of, of Adam and Noah and Melchizedek and Abraham and so forth are really seen to be what they are, the prophetic announcements of Christ and his church. Hillary wrote a magnificent commentary on the Psalms, in which he, he spiritually meditates upon the very, very beautiful Psalms. And in certain ways, Hillary is also recognized as somewhat of a liturgist. Uh, he wrote a commentary, or rather a number of commentaries, on the Gospel of Matthew, but he wrote them in the form of hymns. Very, very few of these have survived, but they are considered to be more liturgical writings than they are theological writings. And because of that... Hillary is considered somewhat of a liturgical writer. So Hillary of Poitiers then was one of the, or was the first doctor of the church proclaimed by Pius IX. Twenty years after Pius IX proclaimed Hillary of Poitiers a doctor of the church, he gave the designation once again to a man who lived some 1,300 years after Hillary. That man may be a bit better known in the Catholic devotional world. At least if you made the Stations of the Cross in the old days, you certainly would remember his name. His name was Alphonsus Liguori. In fact, his name was actually more than Alphonsus Liguori. When he was brought to be baptized as a youngster, he was baptized Alphonsus, Mary, Anthony, John, Francis, Cosmas, Damian, Michael, Casper, that is his full and complete name. He is known to the world, of course, as Alphonsus Liguori. At 13 years of age, he began the study of law, University of Naples. He was a native of Naples in the south of Italy. And he was such a brilliant legal student that four years were taken off his legal studies. At the age of 17, he was allowed to present himself to the to the professors of the University of Naples for examination for the doctorate in both canon and civil law, and he passed his examination magnificently. Can you imagine any lawyer today having four years taken off his legal studies? In fact, the standard course of law today is only three years. So can you imagine a, a lawyer having, for example, two years taken off the three? In those days, it was a more extensive course of study, and St. Alphonsus Liguri was exempt four years because of his bridges. You, you don't hear of such a thing. So he was a very, very uh, marvelous student, and it looked as though he was going to have a marvelous career in the law ahead of him. As a young man, he was never irreligious, but he probably was not quite as devout a young man as he could have been. He was especially fond of music, especially fond of literature. The whole concept of society life intrigued him very much. Well, he made a retreat with the Lazarus fathers when he was a young man, and then he received the sacrament of confirmation. And after those two experiences, he decided that he was going to reorient his entire life. He decided that he would remain practicing law very actively until the good Lord made clear to him the exact and precise path and course of life he wanted him to follow. And once that path of life was made known to him, that he would abandon the study of law, and he would do whatever the good Lord asked of him. But in the meantime, he was going to remain an active lawyer in the world, 
and actively practicing the Catholic faith as well. He began visiting hospitals and tending to the care of the sick, and that probably, that, that pastoral uh, concern for the sick in the hospitals is probably what oriented him in the direction of the Catholic priesthood. And he was indeed ordained a diocesan priest in the year 1726. As is the case with so many of these men, you, you could easily say that uh, Alphonse's family was not terribly happy about his decision to become a priest, but they did indeed accept it. And for two years following his ordination to the priesthood, he established himself as a tremendous preacher throughout the kingdom of Naples. He went around particularly preaching parish missions. We are told that in the 18th century there were two things that, that were very, very common in the church. One was priests tended to preach using very verbose oratory. The second thing was when priests got into confessional, they were very, very tough and rigid on penitence. Now, as far as the oratory is concerned, St. Alphonsus Liguri made the statement as a young priest that he never, he tried never to preach a sermon that the simplest woman in the congregation sitting in the back of the church could not understand. And he remained loyal to that promise. As far as rigidity in the confessional, or being severe, or being harsh with penitents when they came in to go to confession, this is what one biographer wrote about him. He treated his penitents as souls to be saved, rather than criminals to be punished, or frightened into better ways. Well, for the first three years of his priesthood, he lived his life as a resident in his father's house. But he left his father's house to become chaplain at a college. And when he was there, he met a much older priest by the name of Thomas Falcoya. Thomas Falcoya was going on ultimately to become a bishop. But he was still a priest. And Thomas Falcoya had one particular desire in life. He said, I want to found a religious community of men according to an inspiration that I had years ago. But I do not know how to go about founding this religious community of men. And he shared this, this desire, this dream that he had, if you will, with the young father, Alphonsus, in the hope that perhaps someday the young father, Alphonsus, might help him to establish the religious community of men that he wanted to. Now, Falcoya had established a religious community of women. He established it at Stala, which is a town along the Amalfi Coast. And one of the sisters in the religious community of women who he established had a vision one time of what she thought the community should be. And she shared that particular vision of what she thought the community should be with Alphonsus. And Alphonsus, we are told, scrutinized, scrutinized her views with a lawyer's precision. She claimed that she had this inspiration from God. And Alphonsus thought and he thought and he thought, is this really of God or is it just her imagination? And finally, Alphonsus had to conclude this woman had an inspiration from God. And so he went ahead and his, his friend Father Falcoya was now Bishop Falcoya. And he told Bishop Falcoya about this inspiration that this nun had had. And the bishop expedited the nuns forming a religious community of a different sort, taking a red and blue habit. And what was it? It was the beginning of the Redemptoristine Sisters. And the rule of the Redemptoristine Sisters gradually became expanded under Alphonsus to form the Redemptorist Fathers, the Congregation of the Most Holy Redeemer that we know so well today. So it was formed in Scala in Italy under St. Alphonsus Liguri, and we have the establishment now of these Redemptorist Fathers to become missionaries, to preach to the poor, to spread the great truths of faith. So already St. Alphonsus Liguri had accomplished a tremendous amount, and the Redemptorist Fathers became the great retreat masters and preachers that we have always traditionally known them to be. In addition to that, 
St. Alphonsus Liguri also became very, very well-known in theological circles. He became very well-known as a moral theologian. But that was not the whole of Alphonsus Liguri, naturally. As one biographer says, the saint is so well-known as a moral theologian for his writing and for his efforts in founding the Redemptorists that his eminence as a missioner has often been overshadowed. But from 1726 until 1752, he was preaching up and down the kingdom of Naples, especially in villages and in rural settlements, and with the greatest success. His confessional was crowded. Hardened sinners returned to the healing sacraments in great numbers. Enemies were reconciled to the church. Family feuds were healed. And he established the practice characteristic of the methods of his followers of returning some months after a mission was closed in order to confirm and to consolidate the work. So he was known for many, many things, but I suppose what gave him the designation of doctor of the church was his scholarly contribution, and particularly his great work in moral theology, which he wrote over the period 1753 to 1755. He tried to steer a, a balanced course between Jansenism, the rigors of Jansenism on the one hand, and moral laxity on the other. Whenever you try to go that middle way, you are often criticized by people on both sides of the fence. And Alphonsus Liguori was indeed criticized by, by people on both sides of the fence, but he had done his best to produce a very, very balanced work. He also wrote many works of spirituality and was well known as a spiritual writer. And when he, when he approached the age of 66 years, Pope Clement XIII made him a bishop, made him a bishop in the Diocese of San Agata dei Goti, which was located between Benevento and Capua in Italy. He presided over a diocese of some 30,000 souls with 17 religious houses and about 400 diocesan priests. And what did he do? He did the same as so many of these doctors of the church. He preached the reformation of the clergy. He preached the reformation of the faithful. He particularly was concerned with last priests. The priest at the altar, he wrote, uh, represents the person of Jesus Christ. But whom do so many priests today represent they represent only mouthbacks, earning their livelihood by their antics. Most lamentable of all is to see religious, and some even of the reform orders, saying Mass with such haste and such mutilation of the right as would scandalize even the heathen. Truly, the sight of Mass celebrated in this way is enough to make one lose the faith. Isn't it interesting? If St. Alphonsus could come back today, for example, and witness some of the liturgical aberrations of the last 25 years. So it's history repeating itself over and over again. He finally was able to retire and to live quietly in a redemptorist house for the remainder of his life. Although at the end of his life he was tricked into signing a false constitution of his order, which the Pope rejected. And Alphonsus found himself out and a new superior general in. So curiously enough, this marvelous man had a dark night of the soul at the very end of his life. Well, our final doctor of the church, made by, created by, designated by Pope Pius IX, was, of course, St. Francis de Sales. Abbot Chapman, who was a very famous spiritual writer of years ago, describes Francis de Sales this way. He said, St. Francis, under a tact that feels easy and even caressing, has a grip of seal. 
the very delicacy of his penetration, like the sharpness of a superfine hypodermic needle, prevents the patient from feeling how deeply he has been pierced. It is certainly this feature of his holiness that made him the great modern, more than St. Ignatius or even St. Philip Neri. Well, that was an interesting observation from Abbot Chapman, and one would suspect that, having read it, the Jesuits, or the fathers of the oratory, the oratorians, might call for equal time. But nonetheless, it was an interesting observation on Francis de Sales, the third and the final doctor of the church proclaimed by Pius IX in 1877. Francis was born in Savoy. He was born in the year 1567, and he studied with the Jesuits at their College of Clermont in Paris. He then went to the University of Padua. Now, the University of Padua was one of the great law schools of Europe, and there he studied law, and it was very beneficial for Francis de Sales that not only did he study law at the University of Padua, but he also took a rather large number of theology courses. He decided to pursue the theology end of things, and he was indeed ordained a priest in the year 1593. It's amazing so many of these men were ordained priests, and their families are never happy about it. The reason is because they have usually very promising careers in the law. They have very promising careers in politics. They would have wonderful status in society, but they choose to give all of that up and to enter the Lord's service. And that is precisely and exactly what Francis de Sales did, and many were not happy about it. The first five years of his priesthood were spent in the area of Chablais, and he had a rather interesting time of it in the area of Chablais because that particular area came under the jurisdiction of the Duke of Savoy. Now, the Duke of Savoy was trying to implement Catholicism by sheer force. Francis de Sales was sent there, and he was trying to make the point, and he did make the point in much of his preaching, that you should not pay much attention to the Duke of Savoy trying to make you Catholics by force. Catholicism is a priceless, priceless gift. Everybody doesn't have it. Everyone cannot claim to have the fullness of faith. You and I, who are Roman Catholics, could say the very same thing today as Francis de Sales was saying back in the 16th century. And that was the mentality that he was trying to make among his hearers in the various congregations to which he preached, and he did so very, very successfully. Well, he did make his enemies. Some people tried to physically attack him for what he said. The Calvinists were very strong in that particular area of France, and the Calvinists went at him with an intellectual vehemence. From that particular area of France, Francis de Sales moved. He moved to Switzerland, to the town of Geneva, and there was a reason why he moved to Geneva, Switzerland. He was named coadjutor to the Bishop of Geneva in 1599. Three years later, which would take us to 1602, Francis succeeds the bishop and is, in point of fact, himself appointed bishop of Geneva, Switzerland. And really, as bishop of Geneva, as he is pictured here, by the way, in this 
painting directly behind us. That is Francis de Sales, and you can see the, the pectoral cross and the bishop's robe that he is wearing. As Bishop of Geneva, Francis de Sales became one of the great, great uh, movers, if you will, of the Counter-Reformation. That is the Church's official response to the Protestant Reformation. He became one of the tremendous defenders of the faith. In 1604, he met Jean Francis de Chantal. He became her spiritual advisor, and with her in 1610, he founded the order of the Visitation Nuns, the Visitandines. One particular biographer says this, Round the triple theme of St. Francis, St. Jean de Chantal, and the Order of the Visitation, a whole library of spirituality now exists. Not only was a large portion of his incomparable letters written to St. Jean and members of her order, but with his genius for humility, he learned from them. His first great literary triumph, the introduction to a devout life, had swept the secular world with a new hope. So God was not a hater of human happiness. He really loved mankind. With perfect honesty, the bishop told lay folk what were God's merciful terms. You must observe them, and by his grace you could observe them. You could never be happy otherwise. Further, as never before, as never before, the bishop gave lay folk lucid instructions how they might day to day have God as their companion in the world. So that's what he did with his introduction to the devout life and what a spiritual masterpiece it was. Some seven years later, he followed it with another book called The Treatise on the Love of God. And both of these books, Introduction to the Devout Life, Treatise on the Love of God, stressed that sanctity is possible in everyday life and it is possible for every person. His magnificent works of spiritual literature are still read today. In this 21st century, the writings of Francis de Sales give spiritual consolation to millions. Is it any wonder that he was designated the patron of authors and the patron of the Catholic press and how fortunate we are to number him among the doctors of the church?